like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal. Come here, the animals, talking animal, talking animal. Good morning. This is Talking Animals on Ash Wednesday. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest today is Liz Marshall, an award-winning filmmaker whose latest movie is the documentary The Ghosts in Our Machine, which examines the work and life of Joanne MacArthur, the acclaimed photographer who herself was a recent guest on Talking Animals. Marshall and the ghost crew follow around MacArthur as she travels to various shoots from the dark stealth mission of sneaking in and taking pictures at fur farms, the more upbeat and restored obsessions of photographing her animal friends at the farm sanctuary, and along the way we see her seeking to get her photos published more broadly in other endeavors. We'll find out about the ghost in our machine, how Liz uh, approached making the film, and more when we speak with Liz Marshall in a few moments here on Talking Animals. Later in today's show, we'll have a brief conversation with Deborah Starr of Animal Network, the nonprofit organization in Manatee County, about the so-called Love Post, an ongoing art project to which people can salute their pets, past and present, and support Animal Network's efforts along the way. Right now, let's hear an animal song. This is They Might Be Giants with Cowtown on Talking Animals. Yes, I'm 
All right, that was They Might Be Giants with Cowtown, a right little animal song to get us started this morning. Let's move uh, now into our chat with Liz with a reminder that we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663 or emailing us at dj at wmnf.org. Let's welcome Liz Marshall to Talking Animals. Good morning, Liz. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals. (laughs) Excellent. So, congrats on the film and all the response it's uh, generated. And uh, just one measure of how busy you've been with with screenings and other appearances tied to the Ghost in Our Machine. Uh, for some time, your email has had this sort of auto reply message explaining you're on the road with the film and we, you know, slower to respond to email. So, yesterday I sent you a quick note confirming today's interview, and I think you were even home in Toronto at the time. But I still got the auto reply followed mere seconds by a real email from you. So that's busy, I would say. That is definitely busy. So. It is, and I actually, um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't put those auto reply uh, emails. I don't, I don't add them sort of uh, often because yeah. it, you know, I'm always busy. Right. That's yeah. Yeah. But I, I put them um, on when I'm actually physically traveling. Sure. So that it, I'm, you know, there's there's more of a delay time. Yeah. So, for example, um, you know, starting this month uh, on the seventeenth. I will be going to uh, Montreal, then to Cleveland, then to Seattle, then to Colorado, and then possibly San Francisco before coming back to Toronto, and then possibly to Iceland right after that. All of that is with the Ghosts in Our Machine, um, and it's um, a combination of film festivals um, and community screenings, and um, it's, it's wonderful. It's, you know, I'm really... In a, it's a new phase for the project right now in terms of getting it out there and having that frontline participation and being very engaged with uh, communities and hosts, um, organizations and audience. And uh, it, it's a joy. It's also exhausting. And, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so... But that's but that's really cool because one of the things that that would even uh, come back to later if we had time was was uh, you know one of the things that's really striking uh, in sort of tracking your your, your schedule and, and the screenings is that you are at so many screenings. I mean, it's one thing to be at a festival, etc. But I mean, these community screenings and other things. It looks like uh, you and or Joanne are are at many 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 of them, which uh, is is great and great for the people holding those screenings. But again, it must be further uh, further exhausting too. It is, and you know, it's it's really because um, it's a commi- it's a commitment that I made. I'm following through. I, I'm I like to say that I always follow through on my commitments. And a, one of the greatest commitments made was that you know we would make sure that the project gets out there and that it reaches activists and communities. And last year, 2013, was all about sort of more high-profile premieres and also a limited theatrical release in the U.S. as part of an Oscar qualifying campaign. Yeah. And, um, and some great international documentary film festivals. Um, and all of that really had the focus and the intent of reaching a broad, diverse audience. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that we, we have achieved that. Um, because, uh, as you know, every, anyone engaged and committed to this uh, social issue of animal rights um, knows just how tough it is to widen the circle um, and to have more 
people from all walks of life uh, paying attention and, and uh, caring and, and, and being invested and interested in the topic. So that's really been a motivating um, uh, force. But now it's all about making sure that the project actually gets out there because from a distribution perspective, you can't necessarily depend on distributors to do that work for you. You know, distributors are great in maybe getting it on television or getting DVDs manufactured um, and, and other, other ways. Like Blackfish has huge distributors be, behind it. Um, Dog Wolf in the U.S. and Magnolia in the U.S. and CNN as its broadcaster. And as a result, um, it's had millions of people see the film, yeah. whereas The Ghost in Our Machine is kind of like the little sister, and it's very uh, DIY, it's independent, we're a very small team, we don't have those resources at all, and so the commitment that I've made is to you know, really help to usher this into people's lives, and we've had the most incredible, loyal, international um, following on social media since uh, the project was launched, like our Facebook page in 2011. So, um, yeah, that that really defines what we're doing. For sure. Well, just there, you've mentioned probably at least four or five things that I uh, that I want to circle back and, and, and discuss with you because there are, yeah, sort of notable things about the film and, and uh, also I have this whole sort of semi-kooky theory about films of this kind and Blackfish ties into that as well. But but first, um, let's uh, speak to me of ghosts, uh, the titular ghosts and just ghosts, uh, how they connect to the film in other ways for folks who, of course, most listening have not had a chance to see the film. Okay. Well... The ghosts are the billions of animals that are hidden within the industries, within the shadows of these global uh, industries, consumer industries. So um, the ghosts are, you know, all species of animals. Um, They are the animals that are invisible. They are used for uh, biomedical research and product testing, they are used for um, fashion, clothing. They are used for food and for entertainment. And so the film shines a light on, it, it, it illuminates the stories of some of these animals through the, through the photographic lens of Joanne MacArthur, who is an animal photographer and an activist. And so through her lens and through her heart, we meet a cast of non-human animals over the, over the course of 92 minutes. The film is 92 minutes long. And um, this film was uh, shot over the course of um, a year and a half um, in parts of Canada, the U.S., and in parts of Europe. And the idea being that these industries are in our own backyard, and it's our machine. So hence the title is a self-reflexive title, The Ghost in Our Machine. Um, And what that really is meant to evoke is contemplation and reflection, um, that we all are complicit. And the the film is a gentle film about a very dramatic subject matter. And it's designed to remove our blinders so that we see the the ghost. And, And the film bears witness to 
some of these realities, um, but it also ebbs and flows between, um, you know, the haunting, bearing witness um, elements and happy, beautiful rescue stories. So um, it takes audiences on a journey, uh, and it's it's definitely not a gratuitous film, and it's it's not meant to traumatize people, mm-hmm. but it is meant to wake people up. It's a consciousness-raising film. With your explanation about sort of the approach and, and, and defining kind of some other things, including the length, I've been thinking about the film a lot lately, and and, uh, and I think the Oscars are still on a lot of people's mind, and as such, there are a zillion opinions flying around uh, online, many of them sort of jerky, it seems. But so 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 partly in that spirit, in a way, because uh, again, the way the way you approached this, I thought was really fascinating. So so sort of um, again, for those who are listening, who, who most of whom have not had an opportunity to see your movie, l- let me sort of uh, assume the guise of, of studio executive or or worse, internet troll kind of hearing your pitch and, and sort of ask, wait, uh, you know, a film ex- examining the story of a photographer who's not that well-known, this sounds like maybe it could be a documentary short, uh, explain how it's a feature-length doc, which you've kind of a- already done, but I guess that same imaginary uh, showbiz person or whatever might ask, why not sort of, uh, you know, with all deference to Joanne, sort of cut out the middleman and do a, d- a doc directly on the array of, of uh, issues and animal things that, that are explored yeah. in the film. Yeah, so, yeah so, so maybe, you could, maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Okay. Well, first of all, um, it's a 92-minute theatrical long-form documentary, but it's also a 60-minute documentary. So there's two versions. The 60-minute version, um, you know, is being sold um, in, in some countries uh, as a broadcast hour film. Um, the 92-minute version is really um, uh, meant for a captive audience. So for people in theaters um, or, you know, at home when you watch the DVD, but also our Canadian broadcaster, the Documentary Channel, they commissioned uh, the 92-minute version. And why is it 92 minutes? Well, because it's a very epic subject matter. Um, And it's not really an informational style film. It's a narrative approach to telling this story. And with the human uh, protagonist at the center of the movie, um, that allows the narrative to be anchored in a story with a you know, an arc to it um, so that audiences can actually um, have an access point because if it were just a film about the animals, um, then you have to rely on things like, well, is there a narrator? Is there text all the way through with statistics? And these are all valid, interesting approaches and ways of making a film. Um, But the way that I wanted to make this film was to anchor the narrative of this very dramatic and difficult subject matter um, with an accessible person who is, you know, has committed her life as a photographer to trying to get this story told. And so part of the the trajectory of the film is Joanne pitching her work um, in New York at her agency um, and, and, you know, trying to get it on the radar. And, and then the other sort of subplot is that she starts, she gets, um, she starts making her first book called We Animals. Um, and in fact, that book has now been published. 
Um, but in the film, uh, Martin Rowe of Lantern Books, uh, based in New York, he, over a dinner, uh, little dinner party, he actually says, well, maybe I can be your editor. And he, he sort of um, pitches that idea to her. And that storyline unfolds in the movie. So there's a few things going on in the movie. It's kind of epic. It, it doesn't have a traditional sort of arc um, at all. It's much more of a, of a um, poetic and very personal uh, film. And, and, you know, even though Joanne is central to the storytelling, it's really about the animals because she's the portal. She's like the um, catalyst as a way of, uh, you know, like I said, like the, the access point. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's one of the things that, that uh, as you said, there's, there's a lot to it and a lot of storylines that, that then the, the film has that would be distinct from, from many, many docs. And so, yeah, and essentially you're sort of documenting the documenter yeah. And and everything that goes with that. So so, what extent did you feel that then in, in choosing that approach that that uh, working this way would would sort of amplify her work? By the by the way, uh, Liz, you may or may not know that uh, Joanne was a, a guest on the show about about a month ago. So, okay. but uh, yeah, but so so what? Yeah, to what extent did, did did you feel that choosing that approach would amplify her work and of course the issues that it raises, which which are very much the issues of the film as well. Yeah, I mean, I think I was drawn to two things. One. Uh, and initially, uh, as a starting point, is her photographs. So she has a, you know, an archive that spans over 10 years of, of work shot all over the globe. It's called We Animals. People can check out her website, weanimals.org. Um, and I was compelled by the images because of her access to these animals, the proximity, very intimate. Um, and her images invite the viewer to consider animals as individuals, and I think that's radical. You know, I mean, it's not radical when it comes to dogs and cats, of course, because we, most people think, oh, yeah, that's an individual. My dog has a name and a story, and, and you know, he's part of my family. Um, but when it comes to all the others, um, you know, we're, we're very conditioned and socialized to, first of all, not even see them. Uh, that's a big social dilemma, uh, is that we, we wear blinders. But also, um, you know, because there's so many of them uh, and because they're so um, part of our consumer life, and obviously all the vegans listening are like, well, they're not part of my life and I'm vegan as well, but vegans are still a minority. So, you know, animal use and consumption is, pervasive, it's global, um, it's historical, it's tradition, it's all these complex things. So um, that's why actually, you know, another reason why the film is 92 minutes is because this is a really epic subject and I didn't want to just hit people over the head with a fast-paced film. I did it to, to reveal itself in layers, to draw people into it, you know, because uh, it's, you know, uh, there's a lot of social resistance to this issue. Um, but I do think that more and more people, especially in North America and Europe and Australia, uh, parts of Asia, are becoming more and more interested in learning about this and in doing something to make a difference. So, um, 
Am I rambling? No, no. I think that's okay. really good, and, and and that brings me to a couple other questions. Let me just let know if you, folks know that this is Talking Animals. If you just tuned in, my guest is Liz Marshall, a filmmaker whose uh, latest documentary, The Ghosts in Our Machine, tracks the uh, work and life of photographer Joanne MacArthur. If you'd like to ask Liz a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663 or email dj at WMNF. Dot org. So, so Liz, um, how much familiarity did you have with the, the plight of so many of the animals that Joanne documents in, in her work before, before starting uh, the film? Well, um, I did have some knowledge, um, some awareness. I was vegetarian for a long time and kind of at times a lazy vegetarian. Um, so I had a sensitivity and an awareness, but it stopped at a certain point. And I was very focused on other things, and I thought that I didn't really need to do anything else to increase my awareness. So when I started, when I committed myself to making this film um, in 2010, um, of course, the, in, the initial phase of any major project is that you, you go into a very deep sort of um, research and development phase. And I quickly sort of became horrified um, at all the, you know, things that I didn't know about. And um, I, I think you have a sort of, it's a natural sort of gr grief response um, when you really, um, when your blinders are removed and you do see the bits and parts and ingredients uh, of, of the animals around you every single day um, in, cons in our consumer world, uh, in our urban centers. And I think that that was a bit horrifying um, when I when I had that sort of aha, and um, so I so I see it really as a journey. You know, I think that becoming conscious of this issue takes time. For some people, they might go from A to Z overnight, um, but I know for me personally, um, it was a process. It was a journey. Um, and I, I come from a background, I've made 11 documentaries. Um, this is my second feature-length documentary. Um, and, and all of my films focus on, you know, change makers and social justice issues. Um, I've focused primarily on human rights issues around the world um, and s environmental issues. So this is my first animal um, rights uh, film. And I have to say that uh, it's been first, the most con consuming, because I'm in my fifth year now with it. And um, I, I think also it's transformed me personally in a pretty profound way, because I think that it's helped me put all the other pieces together and to, and to see social justice as a, a connected whole and not as these different parts. Um, so I... So um, what I mean by that is that I, I believe that, you know, um, animal rights, environmental rights, and human rights, I think they all belong together. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, uh, it may be a product of your, your filmmaking experience, but I think at least as much sort of the, the, the journey that you described, I, I, I think, and not coincidentally, the ghost in our machine projects kind of a, a sense of discovery, uh, of learning. For, for the viewer along the way. 
and um, and that that sort of brings me to to this this sort of probably half baked theory I alluded to earlier, which I've sort of been developing the last year or so regarding documentaries about animal welfare issues. That is that I think they're they're generally far more effective and, and achieve a much broader reach, which you talked about the reach earlier, when the filmmaker kind of arrives at the project either as a as a neophyte in that realm or holding a, an opinion, maybe a common opinion that's shaped through being at least underinformed, and then that sort of be, becomes drastically revised over the course of making that movie. And so you mentioned Blackfish, and that's a perfect example of my. Uh, my theory is you know, Gabriella Calperthwaite uh, began work on, on that documentary as a SeaWorld customer and fan, taking her kids there. And she told me on, on this show uh, something like, I, I always thought SeaWorld was a happy place. And if I had to be an animal in captivity, I would probably choose to be a killer whale at, at Shamu Stadium. I don't think she thinks that now. And so I just think that, that yeah, sometimes it's as much about the film because I think there's a lot of films that are in docs that are in the animal welfare, animal rights realm that are made by people who are already steeped in that. And sometimes the choices they make and the films that they make reflect that but aren't uh, maybe as effective or aren't as, uh, don't uh, achieve the kind of reach that they could have otherwise. Right. Well, I think my way of understanding what you just said is that I came to this having perspective about other social justice issues and also the painful awareness of how stigmatized this issue is and and also understanding my own resistance to it. So knowing that and bringing that to the table along with my empathy and my care and concern, um, it was always, and it still is always, um, the goal to reach beyond and to help widen that circle of people that care about this issue. So I think it's always important to have perspective. So I don't know why this is, but there is part of me that remains removed or critically removed um, with all films that I make. So, um, or at at least I'd like to think that that's true. Um, So, you know, I'm very engaged. Um, but I'm also critically removed. So I think having both parts is important to the process. Um, you know. Yeah, I, I think that I think it absolutely does, and I think that kind of speaks to to my uh, my uh, theory because I think if if you had both feet in, I guess what I'm suggesting probably wouldn't be able to work because there there you wouldn't have the perspective, you wouldn't have the distance, you wouldn't be thinking about people who are coming to this far less steeped in the information. Right. So uh, the the resulting film would would be far less even potentially uh, inclusive. So with that in mind, then, sort of place in context the, the importance, uh, Liz, uh, upon reflection, of, of your traveling, something of a learning curve in making this film. Over the course of, of the filming, what sort of things did you find sort of most startling? Hmm. Well, I think, I think the most startling um, are the statistics. So I think it, it, the statistics are staggering. For example, uh, 72 billion animals are raised and, and bred and killed annually for food. Um, and that's, an, that's a global statistic. That's a HSU statistic. When you really wrap your head around that, um, and that doesn't include the sea animals, um, the animals caught in nets. So I think it's 
a huge number, and I think it's um, dramatic. So, you know, and then there's all kinds of statistics that go along with the other different animal industries as well that are equally uh, as staggering and over, overwhelming. So I think when, when we're faced with that kind of information, you, you can kind of, sometimes there's a degree of despair or hopelessness for people, but I, but I also believe always in the subculture of hope and momentum and evolution and change. And um, that's why I make the films that I do, because I, I truly believe in it. And I've met so many incredible people through making this movie. And everywhere we go, everywhere we take the film, the people that we meet are inspiring. There's so many compassionate, amazing, dedicated, committed people. And I hope that doesn't sound cliche. Um, I know that, you know, that could sound like a soundbite or something. But I really believe it, and I really, that's been my experience. And that... Um, is inspiring, and that gives me energy to do the work that I'm doing because it can be very tiring, and, uh, you know, um, we don't have resources or, you know, a lot of funding or anything like that. So these are the things that kind of sustain your soul along the way. And, um, yeah, and and I know, and and I've put this out there, and I've said this, publicly that I'm committed for the rest of this year to making sure that the film gets out there and and beyond 2014 as well, but I really will need to transition to my next chapter in life, um, which would be a new project or whatever my new chapter holds next year. Well, and given that you've been been committed to the Ghost in Our Machine for, for now this, this many years. When you were gearing up and when you were shooting the film, maybe even especially editing and, and completing it otherwise, what were, what, if you could quantify some more specifically, what were some of your kind of hoped-for outcomes? Well, um, okay. These are great questions, by the way. I like your questions. Thank you, Liz. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well... That's a great question because it's so important to define that right away, you know? I think it's, I think it's part of the success of any project um, to really define what, it, what your goals are and then to use that as a framework um, moving forward and it, it, it can define all of your other decisions. So, for example, um, I would say one of the greatest goals uh, was to try to reach a broad and diverse audience. And that's working, that we've achieved that. We continue to achieve that. There's so many people. Of course, you know, when we um, attend screenings, you know, you'll have the majority of people in the audience are activists that are already steeped in the issue. Um, but there's all the other ones, too. And... I can't tell you how many times people have said, this is the film I've been waiting for because I can bring my mother, I can bring my best friend, I can bring my cousin, I can bring, I can show it to my classroom. I can, there's people in my life that are skeptical and I know that that this film would open their eyes. So that, I think, has been the goal and it's also the achievement and it continues to be, and I think, and I believe, the legacy of what this project 
is and will be, um, is that it is, you know, and also I say that with huge respect for all the films that have come before and all the films that are to be. You know, Earthlings is an incredibly important film, and it may be very, very, very difficult to watch, and maybe it won't have the same, well, it definitely doesn't have the same demographic, um, but man, is that ever an important movie. Um, so I would say, you know, I'm going to end my answer there. I, I okay. It has been the defining goal and, yeah. and outcome. Uh, kind of. And the greatest challenge, I should say. I yeah. Should say. Okay. Huge challenge, because people assume that it's a, it's a horrifying film to watch, and they don't want to change. They don't want to see it. So that continues to be the challenge as well. And, you know, on a, on a related note, while we're discussing sort of the... The, the challenges and your approach, as you've explained a few times during our, our, our conversation about trying to uh, make it a more broadly reaching things and, and not strictly a, a sort of hit and run intense thing that would probably achieve the opposite effect. Uh, so while we're discussing sort of that, uh, at one point in the, fairly early in the film, you mentioned that Joanne was... There's some scenes where she's trying to sell her work or get her work seen more more widely, and so in one of those meetings, she uh, she says uh, that she now has PTSD mm-hmm. from from all her years of shooting some of these often horrific things. What what, what were your feelings about that? Well, my feeling was uh, that I needed that in the movie. I needed reference to that, but I also needed it to be there in a way that it wouldn't take over the storyline, and I didn't want to present her as a victim, obviously. She's not. She's strong, she's resilient, uh, she's radiant, she's really committed to her work. Um, but PTSD, you know, it, and when she mentions that at the pitch that she's doing at her agency in New York, um, the context of that scene is that she's just come home from Asia, and she's showing these really powerful images to her agency of monkeys that are being, from a farm, uh, that are being bred for research. Um, And, you know, you're looking, we're looking into the eyes of these animals, and it's painful. And the equation is made that, you know, it's a, she's a war photographer. She's on the front lines, she's bearing witness, but it's an invisible war. And it's the war against animals. And this, these are some of the lines that I, I chose to include that she says, some of the dialogue. And, um, yeah, people definitely pick up on that. On that, And people ask her about it in Q&As a lot. I'm sure. Well, it, it, because the thing is, uh, maybe I would even have thought this coming to the film cold, but having familiarized myself with with Joanne's work and again she was on the show a month or so ago and so I looked at the book and and really kind of studied it and preparation for speaking with her I I, I was kind of shocked frankly about the PTSD thing I mean it made sense once she said it but I wouldn't have thought so based on sort of her work her demeanor the way she talks about it so yeah it was very very interesting so so and and I should hasten to point out in the same way that that, that you've talked about sort of the the balance and the journey of the of, of the film that there are also a number of elements within the movie of sort of upbeat and more happy experiences with animals i mean one the, and, and related to the psd i should i should probably mention that that there's uh recurring 
scenes at Farm Sanctuary, which is obviously a place that's clearly uh, restorative and sort of soul-nourishing for Joanne, which I'm going to guess, having been there myself, probably had a similar impact on you. But, I mean, she's very happy hanging out with the cows and shooting pictures. There's other parts of the film totally unrelated that deal with uh, adopted beagles. And so there's there's a lot of uh, colors and shades to this. It's not just... Um, wow, this is a tough in a fur farm, a tough in a farm, you know, factory farming issue. I mean, there's those things as well, but it's but it's a huge sort of rainbow of, of colors that you're dealing with. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it, too. Um, and you know what? I like that, the rainbow of colors, because the farm sanctuary scenes, there's three in total um, woven throughout the, the length of the movie. And those scenes are symbolic in a few ways. One is that it's a sanctuary for Fanny and Sonny, the rescued um, cows from the dairy auction that we get to know over the course of the movie. And two, it's a sanctuary for Joanne. It's where she goes to um, restore herself and to be with happy animals, as, as she puts it, and to be with people that she shares her values with around animal liberation. Um, and then three, it's a it's reprieve within the ebb and flow of the movie, so it's a place of sanctuary for the audience as well. So those scenes are, are very um, strategically placed within the movie. You'll notice that they come after uh, scenes, or, um, and then they're actually, you know, we, I bookend it so that they come before and after um, scenes that are more difficult. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and being at the farm sanctuary... We're with these creatures. It's, you know, all the colors are, it's more lush. It's more saturated. Um, the, the, the audio treatment is, is much more amplified. You know, we can hear the, the, the birds and the crickets and everything is living and bursting with life. Yeah. And it's this sort of, the, conceptually, it's like being in heaven on earth. And it's a very real place, but it's also very much like a storybook from our childhood, like Charlotte's Web, you know, where the animals have names and, oh, they can even talk. And it, I always, that's how I felt when I first went there. I felt like I was stepping back into my childhood where I believed that all animals were my friends and they had names and they could talk. And that might sound silly to some people, but... Not to a guy who has a show called Talking Animals, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Yeah. So. so, you know, Fanny and Sonny don't speak our language, but in those scenes, and Julia, the rescued pig, and all her hilarious little adorable piglets, um, and the other animals that we meet at Farm Sanctuary, they're characters. They're funny. They have personality. Um, they have stories. They're individuals. And so for a lot of people that would not know that, or have, I like to think that we forget <laughs> we become, you know, mature adults. Uh, we forget certain things. We forget some essential wisdom. And and so that's kind of the purpose of those scenes is to remind us sure. of that kind of magic. And, and also, and, and, and as a reminder to people, that's a very real place. And there's many sanctuaries all over the world. Farm sanctuary is just a model. It's a... It's a um, it's a window into what sanctuaries can be and are. 
Yeah. Lots of them all over the world. Right, and there's 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 great joy there, and and by by working those scenes, and especially the way you juxtapose them with others, there's there's that much joy in uh, in your film along the way. Yeah. So. So, uh, uh, Liz, we have just about reached the, the end of our time. I just want to, I've gotten some nice emails along the way. And one thing, uh, though we don't have a specific date, one of our emailers has pointed out, because that last time I checked the, the uh, website, I didn't see a, a Florida date. But I guess there is tentatively, more certainly one in the first two weeks of April. They just haven't set a specific date at uh, USF. So uh, we will let listeners uh, know about that one. The date is more um, specific where they can see the ghosts in our machine. And uh, just quickly, uh, was it easy or hard to uh, to get Radiohead to let you use uh, to the song at the end? <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, that was another dream that I had was to use Give Up the Ghost by Radiohead. And a good friend of mine, Amy Fritz, um, here, she lives here in Toronto. Um, she said, okay, I'm going to, she's a music producer, and she said, Liz, um, write a letter to Tom York, um, explain the significance, the meaning, why it's a marriage that needs to happen between the Ghost in Our Machine movie and the, the song Give Up the Ghost, and I will find a way to make this happen. Or I will find, she said, I will find a way to get this to the band and the manager and, and Warner Chapel Music, etc. And literally within three weeks, we had the two thumbs up, um, artist approval, and and yeah. So That's great. It really works. Yeah, no, it's a really cool way, and we're gonna close out the the show today with uh, with at least some of that uh, song. It's a fantastic way to end it. So, nice. thank you, Liz. Uh, we've been speaking with Liz Marshall, the director of the Ghosts in Our Machine, the website, which is fantastic and just full of information we could have never begun to address in our limited time here today. Is the Ghosts in Our Machine dot com, and as we've learned over the course of the show, there will be a screening uh, locally here the first two weeks of April, and we'll get you a more specific date at USF. So we'll look forward to that. So, Liz, thanks so much for joining us today on Talking Animals and, uh, and, and the great film. Oh, thanks for having me. On the website, check out screenings on a regular basis. Every week we have new updates. Great. All right, thanks again. Have a great day. All right, you too. All right, in just a moment or two, we'll speak briefly with Deborah Starr of Animal Network about the opportunity they're offering people to make a love post, an ongoing art project that honors one's pet, past or present. Right now, let's step into the Talking Animals Comedy Corner. This is Robert Schimmel with a piece called Swimming with a Dolphin on today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals. I take my family on the road sometimes, and it's fun going with them. And my daughter saw this billboard, Swim with the Dolphins, and she's like, Dad, I want to do that. I said, you know, that's not right. They're supposed to be free in the ocean like God intended, not in a freak show at SeaWorld. And she said, I always wanted to swim with the dolphins. Yeah. Always? Or since you signed? (laughs) Because I don't remember ever hearing about it before. But we go there, and for what they charge, you should be able to swim with the Miami Dolphins. (laughs) I said, look, here's how it's gonna work. You walk near the edge of the pool, I'll bump into you. You slip and fall in there, pet him a few times, and then let's get here. All right. In a different set of circumstances, we would have heard the whole piece, but we're sort of running behind today, and we wanted to uh, be sure to make time to speak with uh, Deborah Starr. So she is with the Animal Network. We're going to talk about the Love Post program. Let's welcome Deborah Starr to Talking Animals. Good morning, Deborah. 
Good morning. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. So um, we did a nice full-length interview about a year plus or so ago with Lori Crawford about Animal Network, but maybe just take one sentence or so and just sort of tell us what it is and, and what its mission is. You bet. Animal Network is kind of like the umbrella in our area, especially in Manatee County, to try to bring everybody together for the purpose of promoting spay, neuter, and healthy animals and trying to be a no-kill community. So Animal Network is there with the funds that allows us to save the dog's lives directly since the county can't get that money any other way. Um, Our 501c3 collects that money and disperses it to save dogs who have heartworm or have been hit by cars or have other medical issues. Okay, so that's the that's the basic mission, and of course it takes money to, to do all those sorts of things. So that brings us to Love Post. Again, we can't right, mention right. the price uh, on the air of what it costs to get a Love Post, but um, but for a certain donation, what, what do you get when you pursue a Love well, Post? what we have, we have a, a shelter out in Palmetto at 305 25th Street West, and we're, we're recently trying to beautify it. One of the things we did is we took 49 of these posts that we had that were kind of parking posts and painted them very bright rainbow colors. And we've invited local artists to come in and be commissioned to memorialize your pet. It doesn't have to be a pet who's necessarily passed on. could be a living pet. Uh, first one, for instance, was done for my cat who did, um, who did die last year. And we have a lovely picture of Bonnie with her date uh, that she lived and died on it. And that will be a permanent reminder and uh, uh, in her memory. So we have uh, 48 more of these. I think 10 of them are commissioned already. And um, the money that is raised from Love Post will go directly into the medical fund. And the medical fund is short, always short. Um, one of the things that it's used for is saving heartworm-positive dogs. And, Duncan, you'd be surprised how many of these dogs that come in are heartworm-positive. It's at least 1 in 10. And this year alone, we've um, already paid for over 50, just this year alone, over 50 heartworm dogs to be treated so they did not have to be euthanized. Yeah, no, that it is one of those things that unless someone addresses it as you just did, uh, you just don't have occasion to ponder the, the, the prevalence. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I uh, caution everybody who has a dog out there to make sure that they are on heartworm preventative because it is so prevalent in Florida. With the, It's just from a bite of mosquito not contagious, but once uh, that mosquito has bitten a dog and those worms start to grow, it can turn into a life-threatening illness. But the beauty of it is it can be treated. It just takes money. Yeah, <laughs> so that brings us back to the post. to the love post. So, so let me ask this, Deborah, because we're just about out of time, but is there a way to see any love posts online? Are there any pictures somewhere? Either, uh, not yet, but they will. Okay. Animalnetworkinc.com has the sign-up sheet for it. Sheet. So we would love to have people commission their animals there, as well as local artists step forward. And we invite everybody in the spirit of community uh, to help with the no-kill movement and donate their time if they're an artist. Uh, commission a post if you have have an animal, or just be active in some way to make a difference and help us get to that uh, sustainable no-kill. Great. So again, the, the website is animalnetworkinc.com. There's also a very uh, active uh, Facebook page, which you can find by just searching for Animal Network Inc. Exactly. So uh, great, Deborah. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today on Talking Animals.
All right, thank you. Bye-bye. All right, take care. All right, I'm Duncan Strauss. We're listening to Talking Animals. For the show website is TalkingAnimals.net. It's time to proceed to name that animal tune. This is a giveaway. You do not need to be a enough member to win, and there'll be a prize. A pair of tickets to the Renaissance Fair happening each weekend through April 6th at the Museum of Science and Industry. To the first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this animal song, it's named that animal tune on Talking Animals. One clue. It's never too late to acknowledge the passing of Phil Everly. Johnny is a joker. He's a bird. A very funny joker. He's a bird. But when he jokes my honey, he's a dog. His joking ain't so funny. All right, if we uh, get some guesses on that, we'll take those off the air because we have just about reached the end of today's edition. We're talking animals at WNF Tampa. I'll be back next Wednesday, March 12th, when my guest will be Francis Batista, co-founder of Best Friends Animal Society, who helped launch a no-kill Los Angeles initiative with the city of L.A., which has cut nearly in half the number of cats and dogs killed in L.A. shelters in just two years. I hope you'll join me for that. So we hope you'll visit our website, TalkingAnimals.net, where there's all kinds of links to social networks, past shows, podcasts, and more. I'm Duncan Strauss. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good week. Be kind to animals. Be kind to others. Be kind to yourself. Closing out today's show is promised, not with an animal song, deviating from the norm, but with a very uh, good sense of purpose, I think. So, uh, but rather the way that Liz Marshall closes out the ghosts in our machine with Radiohead's Give Up the Ghost on WMNF, Tampa, Brandon, Clearwater, Largo, Wikiwachi, and beyond. Thanks for listening. Speaking with you again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. on Talking Animals. Thanks. Bye.